From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. This season of Innovators on Tap is sponsored by Husco International, a fast-growing, community-oriented company specializing in high-performance hydraulic and electromechanical components. With over 70 years of experience designing and manufacturing these components, Husco takes pride in collaborating with customers to develop innovative solutions. Husco has U.S. locations in Wisconsin and Iowa and global locations in England, Germany, China, and India. A privately owned company that offers more than just a job, a career at Husco is an entrepreneurial experience full of incredible opportunities for growth, creativity, and innovation. Go to husco.com to begin your next adventure and put the lessons you've learned from the podcast to work. I want you to think of the amount of work that you do each day. Now, imagine you were asked to double it. What would you say? But that's not all. I now want you to give all that extra work away for free. If you think this sounds crazy or unrealistic, you're not alone. That was also my first reaction. But this isn't a hypothetical. In fact, it's the core principle behind today's guest, Matthew Manos, and his company, Very Nice. The company is a collaborative design strategy practice that specializes in creative problem solving based on his give half methodology, where he gives half of his company's services away for free to nonprofits and other community organizations so that they can spend money directly on the problem that they are really trying to solve. Matthew started out as a semi-professional skateboarder where he first learned to embrace failure and now applies those lessons and others to running his business and teaching innovation at USC. One of those lessons is Matthew's advice to not accept the status quo and instead to find success on your own terms. When he says success is up to you to define, constantly trying to become someone else is the single biggest distraction. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Matthew, welcome and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, before we get into your career, I learned that you once were able to simultaneously ride the unicycle (laughs) while playing the mandolin. And I'm trying to figure out what was the motivation to teach yourself to do this? And can you still do it today? Wow, you you dug into the internet there. That <laughs> so yes, it's true. Uh, it was my senior year of college at UCLA, and in the program that I was in called Design Media Arts, there's a class called Senior Projects. And basically, right ahead of that class, uh, a mentor of mine said, "You know, hey, so what's your project going to be? What what have you always wanted to do?" And for some reason, you know, the first thing that came to mind was, well. I've always wanted to learn how to ride the unicycle and I've always wanted to learn how to play the mandolin. Uh, You know, could that be a senior project? And, and the idea from there became, well, you know, UCLA being a quarter system, it's 10 weeks long. 
can I teach myself both of these things, but not only teach myself both of them, uh, both of them at the same time? And then can I document the journey the whole way? So that's what I did. And I, I created a blog at the time. Um, I made a little zine kind of pamphlet that I gave out afterwards. And, uh, you know, the answer is, unfortunately, I don't think I ever really could have claimed that I could do it. <laughs> it was one of the hardest uh, t projects I've ever taken on. I, I think I was able to play maybe eight chords um, by the end of that. But, you know, I know a big theme that, that you look at with this podcast is failure. And in a lot of ways, that's what that project was about for me. <laughs> Did you, uh, were you able to ride the unicycle? Yes. So that, that actually surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, came a bit more natural to me. It probably took maybe a few weeks to be able to sort of ride that down the street. Um, I say maybe not surprisingly, because I, I have a, a history in skateboarding. Uh, and so I think, you know, balance is one of those things that just kind of clicks for me. You know, there is a show that's available right now uh, called America's Got Talent. You know, if this company <laughs> thing doesn't pan out, you might have a side gig there. Hey, there we go. And if and if that doesn't pan out, then I might have a blooper reel of some sort. <laughs> So switching uh, to your career, uh, you founded your company very nice when you were only 19. And can you just give us kind of that little elevator pitch of how did the business come about and what you guys do? Yeah. So I just mentioned, you know, that I used to skateboard. I used to skateboard competitively. And so I would uh, be at the skate park quite a lot uh, preparing for competitions. And I say that because I actually met the founder of a nonprofit at a skate park and became really inspired by how mission driven they were and you know and kind of how how much they really cared and poured their passion and energy into what they did and i just knew i i need to work with people like this so very nice started around that time actually uh you know when i was still skateboarding i was in college etc and you know i learned that nonprofit organizations spend billions of dollars on design and marketing services each year and couldn't help but think is there a model i can create that might be able to offset some of that and and so that's where very nice comes in we do uh, a lot of pro bono work we give half of our services away for free to try to uh, essentially sort of deal with that issue of how much money is being spent frankly on people like me uh, in order to allow them to reinvest those funds into their cause and hopefully make more impact. I know that when you uh, founded the company, I read somewhere that you said about 95% of the projects that you initially took on were essentially completely pro bono. You were giving away your services. And so as a result, you didn't make a lot of money from those early jobs, but you graduated with more experience than some people who were decades older. Now, I see a lot of people today who are basically waiting for direction or they're waiting for permission to do things, but you just kind of went ahead and started doing it. Why do you think you had the confidence to do this while you're still in the middle of college? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I try to think back at that too, because in a lot of ways, I feel like I was more confident back then than I am now. You know, if I was to start this today, um, I think there was some, maybe something about the youthful naivete, you know, that that overcame me. But also, um, you know, what I what I like to think more, you maybe more so than that, is I think I was lucky to find, you know, my my purpose or my why 
pretty early on, you know, and, and there was a lot of things that I got really excited about around that time. But this was the first thing where I think I really felt that click of this is what I'm doing. This is what I have to do. And, and I, think, I think I just truly believed in that to the point where, um, you know, I, I really had to make it work. And, that, and that's what it all became about for me. So one of the things your company is known most for is this concept of give half. And it's a model where you operate on this strategic business approach that you call the double half methodology, where you double your workload and then give away half of it for free. And I'd like to understand where did this idea come from and what are people's reactions when you first suggest to them we should work twice as much? <laughs> well, the, the reactions at first are much like what your face just looked like. <laughs> One of a little bit of disbelief, but intrigue. And I think that that's actually the perfect combination because it gets people wanting to learn more about it. Um, you know, it came from really this realization, you know, first, I set this mission, I wanted to do as much pro bono work as possible. I came up with the idea of giving half. I, I really liked that because from my perspective, when you do something more than half of the time, it is now not an extracurricular activity. It's integral to what you do. And so I knew I wanted to make that work. And then, you know, I also knew that I wanted it to be sustainable and just as successful as any other uh, business like mine. And so I, you know, I started thinking, well, how can I make that work? Well, if I want to do, if I want to give half of my work away for free and do just as well as the next guy, um, I've got to do double the work as them. That is, that's the simple math, basically. And then the question became, okay, well, how on earth do I do that without actually doing twice as much work as them? And this is really the biggest aha moment um, that I had of Very Nice is realizing that there are a lot of designers and strategists and writers out there that are willing and really want to volunteer their services uh, for good causes. And so what we started to do was build uh, a sort of network or army of, of professional volunteers. And this delegation is what allowed me to do twice the amount of work or the equivalent of twice the amount of work that the next firm might have. Um, so that really is is actually the secret sauce of how this works uh, from a logistical standpoint. And then from a sort of company culture standpoint, what's really exciting about it is I now get to work with a really diverse group of people all the time, you know, um, from all different disciplines, uh, a lot of them all over the world. And that's honestly been one of my favorite aspects of this um, throughout. So... As a guy who ran a company and we were always trying to do more, go faster, I love the idea of double the work, mm -hmm. but why not just apply double the work to the for-profit business? Could you just do that with that work or is there some flaw in that thinking? So that, that could be done in one of two ways. I think that A, that could be done where you charge double um, the rate that you might. And I didn't. I just didn't like that idea, especially because at the time we were primarily working with smaller businesses. And so A, I don't know if that would have been feasible, but then B, it, it just, it didn't feel quite right that they were ultimately sort of sponsors of this pro bono work. I, I kind of wanted to be the sponsor of the pro bono work and have our company do it um, regardless. The, on the other side of things, you know, we could do double the for-profit work, right? So just double the clients there. But I think that what that then creates is this 
uh, lack of balance between the pro bono work and the for-profit work. And I've always loved that it is an equal balance. I think that they feed each other, both in terms of sort of a, a sense of purpose and motivation, but also in terms of content. You know, a lot of people think that the most innovative or forward-thinking uh, entities out there are sort of startups in Silicon Valley. And I actually think that it's nonprofits. Uh, and, you know, that that almost sounds like a joke because, you know, they're, they're so bureaucratic, red tape, right, traditional. But if you think about it, there's very few sort of sectors uh, out there where everyone is incentivized to think about the future. Every nonprofit is thinking ultimately about how they don't exist anymore. Uh, and I don't think that that's the case for very many traditional businesses. So you can learn a lot from that sort of mission-driven culture or vision-driven culture that they have and apply it to the private sector. And then vice versa, there's so much for the social sector to learn from the private sector as well of thinking beyond donations and grants, getting creative with product development, for example, uh, and so on. Well, one of the things I think you've said is that the pro bono work and working with nonprofits, it also gives you kind of the freedom to maybe take more risks, to be more innovative, because there's, you know, from your standpoint or the volunteer standpoint, there's less downside to these projects, right? They're donating their time. Is there a way to translate that nugget and reuse it in the for-profit model? Or is it is it inherent to this idea that you're volunteering your time? You know, I, I think it I think it certainly lives well in the volunteer space, but I think it is possible in the in the for-profit work as well. I would say, and this this might not be, you know, a hard true fact, but from my perspective, I think it's easier to be to have clients that give you the license to take those risks when you've been in business for a little bit and you have a track record or maybe a methodology that's unique to you, et cetera. Um, I, I can't think of a single for-profit client I had in the first, let's say, you know, three years that really were trusting of, of giving the license, you know, to me to be able to be really creative and, and run with it. A lot of them kind of came with their specific needs. Um, and then later on, you know, in today, now it's been 12 years, you know, it, we still, it's not like every client is, okay, do whatever you want. Like you guys, you know, you're the best in the world at this or whatever, I, I wish. Um, but more of them do that. So that, that I think maybe is something that just comes with time and, and with sort of the trust uh, in your work that that, that time creates. Um, I know you're the assistant dean for academic strategy at USC. And some of your classes are actually described as a radical approach to innovation. And so I'm curious, if it's radical, it must be very different than what most other people are doing. So what do you think most innovators or people teaching innovation are getting wrong? Well, so I think, I think a really amazing thing that the academy is built on is the idea of teaching a mindset as opposed to teaching skill set. Uh, that, that to me is really the cornerstone of it. So the, the concept of the academy is to basically build a mindset that blends how, to, how would a business person perceive this problem, react to this problem? How would a designer do that? How would a technologist do that? And be able to then see problems through all three of those lenses. Um, now, they do, of course, learn skills. We teach them some coding. We teach them some design. We teach them some business 
But what they're really learning is none of those things, really more the way that you can think with all of those combined or sort of the spaces between those things even and where those intersections uh, take place. I, I think that that is really what makes it groundbreaking from a curriculum standpoint, especially in a higher education uh, you know, environment. And, and it's, been, it's been really exciting to be a part of that for sure. Switching gears a little bit. You were quoted as saying, we have entered a world in which the nine to five lifestyle is slowly dying out. We hope to be pioneers of an alternative perspective on the workplace. The idea that we can actually hold multiple lives and not necessarily have our entire work week surrounded by one single business. So in my experience, the most successful companies and entrepreneurs actually have this incredible focus on a single mission or purpose. And so essentially they were all in on one idea and it, it took over their lives. Are you suggesting that that approach doesn't work? There's a different approach. I'm curious, how do you react to that? Yeah, no, I, I think that, I, so I believe in focus as well. I, I think that I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't, if I haven't been doing the same thing for as long as I've been doing. But what I sort of recognize in a given week, and I think what that quote is sort of given or getting at, is the idea that, you know, you can get pretty burnt out pretty quickly if you are center focused. And so what I what I like to kind of propose to do is have side projects. And these can essentially uh, take the place of a break. Uh, so instead of maybe taking a break and going on Facebook or scrolling through the internet, you know, work on your side project. And what that does is it triggers a different way of thinking about the about sort of the world that you're in. And I think can ultimately inspire a new perspective on the more sort of typical or anchor work that you might do. If you're enjoying this episode and want to learn more about how you can discover the mindset to pursue the impossible, please check out my new book, The Innovator's Spirit, where I explain the beliefs that lead to the behaviors that make innovation possible. It is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Now, let's get back to the show. I want to shift gears and ask you some questions that really get into your mindset and, and tease out a little bit about how you personally think about innovation and entrepreneurship. So I want to start with, has your success come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure? So I think it depends on how you define failure. Um, you know, if you define failure as, uh, it, this might be kind of a, a fun way to define it, an unintended progression. <laughs> um, I would say it definitely comes from embracing it. So, you know, as a person, I'm very type A. Uh, that typically manifests itself in a kind of obsession with time. And on the other side of things, though, as we've talked about, I'm very mission driven. And so my motivation to change course, it just isn't always as immediately apparent to too many people, uh, maybe aside from myself. I change course and take those risks based off of things that are more, how do I actually get closer to my mission and maybe a little bit different than, than uh, what might be a more typical you know, motivation to change course. On the, on the flip side, you know, if you define failure as as gut reactions that 
could have financial consequences, then I, I would say the success is due to avoiding failure. I'm, I'm a very careful person when it comes to business, uh, when it comes to, you know, writing proposals that are very clear, making sure everybody understands the scope of work, uh, what's expected of everyone. Uh, those are things that are important to me to be really careful about. But, but yeah, from a more conceptual standpoint, um, yeah, I, I would say that I, that I embrace it for sure. So taking your role in teaching about this area, what do you think we could do differently to really help develop the mindset of how to look at failure, to interpret it the way you've just described it? You know, one of my ideas that's been floating around is I look at uh, startup accelerators and I think one of the mistakes we make is it's all about trying to help that startup succeed. When honestly, what I think we'd be better off doing is getting them to fail mm -hmm. and then helping them recover from it and learn from it and develop some resiliency. But I'm not sure that's practical. I'm not sure how to pitch the come to my failure accelerator. It just doesn't <laughs> sell well. But so what do you think we could do differently to help people as we're developing that mindset, get their head around that? Well, you know, I think a lot of people in the classroom environment would say, you know, create a safe space to fail, uh, you know, build kind of psychological safety, uh, maybe bond the students so that they trust one another. And I think all of that is good advice. But I do think that there is room to also create assignments that can't be passed um, as well. So everyone literally will fail by design. Um, there was a, a psychologist, I believe his name is Paul Paulus from uh, UC San Diego, and he had done a lot of studies on creativity and, you know, can you teach creativity and, and all these kinds of things. And one of the bits of advice that he gives is to take on impossible projects. So for example, you know, sit at home and try to make your dog fly. Um, and now the kind of funny thing, you will fail at that, but what he found in terms of the psychology of it is that trying an impossible task actually forces your old ideas to compete, uh, and therefore generates new ideas. So I think there's something really awesome about that, that we could be doing, whether it's in, in the, the accelerator that you just described, which sounds amazing or in the classroom or honestly in the workplace, you know, if we can take even just five or 10 minutes a week to try to take on an impossible task, um, it might pay off actually. So when you're confronted with a problem, are you more likely to think outside the box, build a better box or set the box on fire? All right. I'm going to throw you a twist and say none of the above. Okay. And so what I, what I mean by that is I think I'm more likely to set the problem itself on fire. Uh, you know, I found that the problem itself is rarely well defined, whether that's with a, a client or, you know, maybe your own personal problem that you might be facing. And so I, I, I would like to start by rethinking the reason we're even looking at these boxes. And then once I do have a better understanding of the problem, I think I would pick uh, build a better box. And what I like about that is it implies a sort of systems thinking, you know, I, I, that that's kind of the feeling that I get from it. And, you know, I, I've, I'm not really a fan of innovation for innovation's sake. You know, I, I really do like 
if thinking if we're going to put something new out into the world, you know, with all of the crises that we have right now, I, I hope that it's necessary, you know, and so and so I, th- I think that by implying, you know, build a better box, I feel like that implies, you know, building a structure or, or a system or, or something that's stable uh, as well. Okay, that's great insight. So when you're evaluating talent for your team, what is the quality or trait or skill or thing that's most important to their future success? So I think it's I think it's two things. And I hate I hate answering a question that says the most important thing with two things. Um, But I think there's a clear mission. And then uh, I think it's a creative mindset. And so, you know, mission, we've talked about quite a bit, you know, I feel like if you have a mission, and, you know, you're going to be joining, you know, my team or any other team, and it's clear how your personal mission relates to sort of maybe the the values of the company, or maybe the mission of the company, um, that is going to be just a match made in heaven right there. Um, now on the on the mindset side, right, we we can kind of relate to some of what we talked about of, of technology and so on earlier. You know, skills are important, but they they change so fast. You know, there's forever a new version of whatever of whatever you're doing. And so, you know, these skills you have to kind of re-up every couple of years. Um, versus a mindset and a mission, you know, those two things, they, they just change at a much slower pace. You know, the, the mission is up to you to change if it ever changes. The mindset, uh, you know, if, if you kind of learn it right, and it is very creative, is ultimately just about seeing problems in new ways, solving those problems. It's kind of tool agnostic. I feel like, uh, I feel like, yeah, that there's a clear mission, and kind of a creative mindset that that I think is the number one tool people can have. Is your personal decision bias to limit your downside or maximize your upside? So I would say absolutely maximize the upside, uh, especially when it comes to developing concepts that are new, uh, you know, or or sort of difficult for people to understand. I really love taking risks with my new ideas and. I don't know. I feel like if you if you're not you're you're likely not moving the needle. Um, you know, I think I think there's something about the fact that almost every venture I've ever ever been involved in, I've had to really take a lot of time to explain to people why on earth am I doing this. <laughs> I think that that kind of goes to show that um, you know I'm on that upside side of things of of really trying to make a a bet on an idea that, you know, or on a future that, uh, you know, will be better for, for us all, hopefully. So as you think about your experience as an entrepreneur and as someone who's actually getting to train and develop other aspiring entrepreneurs, what's the one thing you kind of know now that you would like to share with someone who's considering a path of going out on their own? So I think the most important thing that I wish I knew, and this, this is hard to pick because there are a lot of things, uh, obviously, that I know now that I wish I would have known then. But to me, the single most important thing is that success is up to you to define. And so what I mean by that is there are a lot of portrayals of success, whether that be 
uh, in media, in the movies, your friend, your neighbor, etc. You know, it, it, having multiple offices, having many employees, all of these things. Uh, and you know, the fact is, success is kind of like a thumbprint. You know, it really is unique to each individual person. And and I don't think we've seen it like that yet. Uh, you know, I think that we've been so distracted uh, by becoming somebody else. Uh, and, you know, and I, I just don't think that that's fair to, to put that pressure on yourself. So, so I would say, you know, really take the time to think about your mission, um, think about your product, your background, whatever it might be, and just ask yourself that question, how do I define success? And how can I work towards that definition? And if you aren't sure how, how you define success, you know, take some time each week to think about that, actually invest some time in, in reflecting on that and, and see what happens. I think you'll end up, you know, growing in a way that, y- that you'll ultimately be more happy uh, with what you're doing as well. You know, for me, I, I got involved in Cree and I was relatively young and, you know, we grew the company and I'm a CEO and it get bigger and bigger. And I don't think I ever thought about what success was. I was so busy chasing, you know, this next thing. It wasn't until I had to retire due to health reasons that I stepped back and I started to go, wow, I, that wasn't my definition of success. I'm glad I did it. I enjoyed things. I learned from it, but my definition in the last three years has radically changed. You know, for me, success has so much to do with, you know, what do I get personal fulfillment about? How do I, how do I impact others? And and I know it sounds corny to some people, but it really is. I, I go to sleep at night with a feeling of accomplishment and achievement in a way that has nothing to do with all the traditional trappings. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't trade that experience that I had because it's enabled me to do different things. But that being said, it's, uh, it, my definition is radical, but I had to physically walk away. And I, I don't think I could have just thought my way out of it. For me, it was, it was a forced break that got me to see it for the first time. But I think your advice is just incredibly important. So before we wrap up, is there anything you wish we would have talked about or you want to mention? Yeah, you know, well, I, I, in, in along the lines of kind of how I define success, I, I think one of the most important things for me is to leave a legacy. And, and what I mean by that is to be able to create something where I don't have to be in the room, but people are still getting value out of it. And what that's looked like lately is uh, all of these toolkits that I've been putting out recently. So at Very Nice, we, you know, we over the years, we've developed a lot of different creative or strategic methodologies. And, you know, just in working with our clients, uh, you know, you do that. And I had I had realized, you know, pro bono is so important to us, but pro bono is quite limited, because it has to be a human talking with a human, there's such a limitation of time uh, in doing that work. And so around our 10 year anniversary, I thought, what if we could kind of rethink pro bono? What if we could take all of the methods we use and actually publish them online in very clear step-by-step toolkits uh, that people could kind of do themselves? And so we actually did that, uh, you know, and we called that project Give All, and we uh, kind of a play on Give Half. And we uh, ended up expanding that this year to a larger platform called Reginald that has all kinds of different toolkits on there. So, you know, I think 
what I would love for, for listeners to do is, is uh, take advantage of that stuff. And you can find it all at reginald.co as well. And that is awesome stuff. Well, Matthew, this has been incredibly enlightening. I am, uh, what you've done is so cool. There are not many ideas when I first read them, like, huh? I mean, <laughs> I, I'm considering myself pretty open minded. And the give half uh, philosophy, and, and not only that, but the practical nature of what it opens up, you know, how it, it really gets into asking someone to work double is very different than asking someone to work one job and then work twice as much, but for a different mission and purpose. It really changes the engagement. And some of the ideas about how you guys have realized this huge innovation and creativity potential by, you know, taking projects that have a completely different risk profile. It's just, it's such amazing work. I'm thankful for what you're doing and and what you shared today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I want to wish you the best of luck and uh, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chuck. This has been great. Thanks to Matthew for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his business and life perspectives, including his thoughts on the value of outside feedback. As he says, if you only listen to yourself, you're only seeing the world through your point of view, and that can result in something that is even more harmful. Even annoying feedback can be helpful sometimes. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far, including our sponsor, Husco International. While we are all proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you will tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and let's go change the world.